What's up, friends? We have reached episode three of Hot-Blooded, a podcast where I, Kat Jones, talk to musicians about love, rock and roll, and whatever else comes up along the way. As of yesterday, I and likely many of you listening have been in quarantine for exactly one month. And if you're like me, you're going a little crazy. I have chosen to channel a lot of my insanity and uncertainty about the world into the creation of this podcast. So if you're listening, I really appreciate you being on board. I also hope you're doing okay and that maybe this podcast is adding a little bit of cheerfulness to your week. In any case, the guest on today's show is the singer, songwriter, and amazing guitar player, Emma Ruth Rundle. Um, Emma is incredibly special to me and many people. She used to play guitar for the post-rock band Red Sparrows. She also fronted a band called Marriages. But in recent years, she's been playing solo, um, either by herself or with a full band behind her. And the solo music that she plays could probably be described in a lot of ways, but a lot of people use the term dark folk because it's emotionally raw and heavy with delicate parts that will truly break your heart into a million pieces in the best way imaginable. But she also often plays alongside metal bands and no one even bats an eye. And if you want to examine your entire existence as it pertains to the world around you and process every relationship and emotion you've ever had, throwing on an Emma record and just sort of Sitting in quiet reflection is probably the best way to do that. Her voice and her poetry and the incredible heaviness of her guitar playing will rip you all the way open and you'll be a better person for it. Anyway, the way Emma came into my life is kind of a funny story. So it was about four years ago in 2016, right around the time she released her album Marked for Death. I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time. And she was staying in town for a while. And there was one day when I happened to look at Twitter and she had posted asking if anyone in the Portland area lived in the country and had a place where she could light a fire for a project. And my friend Liesl, the same one that I mentioned in the Monster Magnet episode, had just moved to a farm just south of town. So I contacted her and asked her if she'd be down to have Emma come light a fire on her property. and. Unsurprisingly, she was like, of course. So long story short, that weekend, Emma and her friend drove out to meet us on this random Oregon farm. And when she arrived, she pulled out this weird stuffed goat that she had found on the street. And she said that she wanted to light it on fire and film it for a video. And I'm not sure if she ever ended up using the footage for anything, but I do know that we had a hell of a good time drinking beers, barbecuing, and watching this unexplained stuffed goat burn in this huge fire until it was nothing but a pile of springs and screws in the ground. And I will never forget that. Anyway, fast forward a few years. She's living in Kentucky now with her now husband, Evan Patterson, who is the front man for both Young Widows and Jay Jail. And the two of them have an incredible creative relationship they recorded a split record before they even got together called The Time Between Us, which she'll tell you the story about it shortly. And they often play in each other's bands and they have spent months, maybe even years of their lives at this point on tour together. I wanted to talk to Emma about the story of how the two of them met, but also how they navigate a marriage and creative relationship when they're either together constantly or entire continents apart from one another. She's an incredible human being, and I hope you enjoy. You know, something that's always really struck me about your music is that it is it is so vulnerable and it seems like you get to peek behind the curtain to some extreme emotions and delicate times in your life that you really let us into. 
What is it like for you performing songs like that, that are so, so vulnerable and so sometimes painful? It can be difficult. Um, it can be different ways. I think that it can be cathartic, but it can also be like, um, a very grinding experience. It can really wear on you psychologically and physically, like vocally it can wear on me. Um, and I feel like it's different with the band. There's like a little bit more of the, like we can rock out a little more and that kind of shield Mm -hmm. shields me a little bit from my own personal vulnerability as an artist, like in expressing those moments, whereas doing it solo, like I did on this last tour, uh, I personally connect a lot more with the emotion um, and the experience and stories of the songs, which is what is at the heart of the music and why I do still value doing that um, and think it's important to uh, take opportunities to do solo tours like that. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I think about it and I've thought about you know, what would it be like if I were to write music that wasn't so personal? Um, would there be a way to separate myself from it a little more and make it, you know, easier in a way, tell a story that isn't so directly related to, you know, like an anecdotal situation, but, you know, I don't think that's my genre, I guess. Like, Mm um, I haven't given up on that idea, but but I, but I don't know. So (laughs) (laughs) you have all the time in the world to figure that out if you want to. I think so. Hopefully. So between your last record on dark horses and the one before it, um, Mark for death, there's two completely different feelings there. And I know that you, you had more of the full band on, on dark horses and, um, Mark for Death was more acoustic and and you playing soul. Is that correct? Am I screwing that up or? No, no. I, I think, well, there's still instrumentation on Mark for Death, but it wasn't written that way. It was like stuff that we did there in the studio. And um, On Dark Horses was written specifically with the band in mind and the band being like very specifically Todd Cook Evan Patterson and Dylan Naden because we had come off of doing all this touring together. And at the time there was a chemistry between us all that I thought it would be a real waste to not capture in some way um, in music and on a recording. And, and that's why we did on dark horses that way. And then thematically between the two of them, where were you emotionally compared to the creation of the more delicate solo-esque record that was Mark for Death? Uh, So when I recorded that album and when I wrote most of that record, I was living... um, So I'm on on a label called Sergeant House, for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, And I've been working with Kathy, uh, who does management and owns and runs the label for 10 years. she I met her through Red Sparrows and have worked with her since then and will probably work with her forever. She's like family to me. Um, and she owned a property out in the California desert. Um, and I was on hard times and I was just like living out there by myself. It was, um, you know, we're really dealing with the subject of isolation a lot now these days. And that was, that was extreme isolation. And I had come out of some relationship things that were difficult and some other situations that were troubling for me. And I was kind of in a height of an, um, an alcoholic moment and was, uh, I mean, I, I was mentally like suffering quite a bit. And in extreme isolation, and that's how that record was written and then recorded there, out there at the, in that place. We, we, it was called The Farm. There was nothing like farm-like about it because nothing was gro- growing. It was like very, um, uh, well, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, 
not a romantic desert landscape. I'm imagining people are seeing like this beautiful Airbnb Joshua tree kind of situation, <laughs> which is not at all what it was like. But I think that there's a desperation and I was very vulnerable. I mean, it was really very thin. I was, I, I've also recently kind of coming to terms with what a horrible eating disorder I had at that time too. Uh, so really? struggling with alcoholism, struggling with an eating disorder out there in the middle of nowhere spiraling in all of these different ways. And that really comes across, I think, in that record. And then with On Dark Horses, it was like, you know, you fast forward a few years and I was coming away from touring with Death Heaven. Um, and I went straight from the tour with Death Heaven, literally like didn't go home, got into the van with JJ. Like, so they, Evan and I, this is like, this, this is the story is there was going to be, Kathy was like, let's do this split release. New band on the label, J. Jail. It's Evan Patterson from Young Widows. Okay, I love Young Widows. I love Evan. You guys are each going to have a side. And why don't you go to Europe together and they'll just be your band? And I was like, okay, oh, that sounds wild. Now I would like never consider doing something so intensely insane, like playing music with complete strangers on a tour as your band. And so I was like, you know what? This is happening so close to the end of this Death Heaven tour. Let me just, like, meet you in Denver, because that's where Dylan, my drummer, lives. I'll just ride back with him there, and I'll just get in your van, and I'll sell your merch at shows until we go to Europe. And that's that's how it all happened. And from that moment on, I was just, like, with these people nonstop, and we formed this super tight homie bond of... Um, this motley crew of musicians just <laughs> rambling around life together. Fast forward another year, like we made the record. And somewhere along the way, you and Evan, aka JJ, fell in love. This is true. Yes. <laughs> How did that happen? Um, okay. Well, so I'll I'll delve into the backstory a little. I don't know if I've have I've ever told you the story that um I was in a band called Red Sparrows, a post-rock band. And I played on the last album, the last studio album um, called The Fear is Excruciating. And I did the last two years of touring with that band. I replaced a guitarist called Josh Graham, really enjoyed playing his guitar parts and writing on that last record. And the very first tour that we did was with Russian Circles and Young Widows. And we toured to play a festival in Austin called Fun, Fun, Fun Fest. And I think this is 11 years ago, or 10 or 11 years ago. And that was my introduction to Evan and Young Widows. And my first, like, real strong memory of Evan is we played the launch pad in New Mexico. If you're a touring musician, you've definitely know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I had one of the weirdest nights of my entire life there. What were you doing there? <laughs> I was on tour with a band called Drunk Dad in 2014. And they played there and did one of the like, go on stage and ask the crowd if anybody has a floor we can sleep on. And some weird people were like, you can come sleep at our house. And um, it ended up being like all the way out on the outskirts of town, like very far from everything so far that taxis wouldn't go there. Oh, no. <laughs> and we went in and it was like a party situation with like a dude on a mattress in the middle of the floor and the bathroom door was off its hinges and I flushed the toilet and I swear to you, cockroaches came swirling around in the toilet. <laughs> oh no I ended up sleeping in the van outside anyway so launch pad real weird do you think Continue. that those do you think that those people might be listening now I have no idea but if they are I I thank them because I will never ever forget their uh accommodations and it was very <laughs> generous of them to let us stay with them but man it was it was a very weird day I mean, okay, so I all, I mean, that is such a great story and such a core part of touring is important to hear and know that 
I've actually thought, you know, we have always and always are thankful for anyone that will let us stay. I've thought about writing a little tiny like zine about if you are going to host a band, here are the basic things, <laughs> you know. Uh, but but <laughs> yeah, um, launch. Sorry to get us wildly off track, but no, no, just... <laughs> it's okay. But that but it's important. People think like, oh man, you've been on tour. It's been must have been so amazing. And I'm like, okay. If you could just beam stories like that into people's minds. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. Evan and I just really hit it off right off the bat. And I have to say at the time, we were both really into drinking whiskey. And I mean, we just made friends. It was just right off the bat. I was charmed. I wasn't single, but I can't say I didn't have any thoughts. I have this really specific (laughs) memory. And I feel like it's okay to say this because we're married. Yeah, But we were on tour and there was one night where we all slept in the same hotel. And I remember like Greg and I, I don't know, we like knocked on the young widow's door and like Evan answered the door and he like wasn't wearing a shirt. And I thought I was going to faint. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. And I was, you know, I was younger. I don't know. I've never seen anything like that before. So (laughs) Greg had to shoo me away to the room. Just kidding. I mean, it, it was hard not to be in awe of them as a band. And I mean, I don't know if you've seen them. I have. Oh, man. They they just really blew me away. Like, their whole... I had never seen anything like that. You know, they had the lights in the Emperor calves like that. Oh, yeah. And just this, like, meditative intensity that was going on with the music. And, and since then, I've, of course, like, obtained all their records and I'm a huge weird fan and, like, know all the songs to my husband's records which is weird that's not weird at all i feel like if you didn't that would be even weirder (laughs) i i mean it really left an impression on me and and not even like you know all the creepiness aside like i'm joking but as a musician seriously in a very pure and honest way like it left a very strong impression on me and um the way in which they approach performance and what they did with what they had like i hadn't seen bands doing that and evan's guitar playing really uh stuck with me actually this is like um there's a the song the very last song on the very first album i released on my own the electric guitar album it's called the ecstasy and thinking of final exits i think god i think that's the title of the song uh was really actually inspired by one of young widow's riffs because we had i made that record Red Sparrows, but we had come away from doing that tour with Young Widows, and I'd been like really obsessing over them and and the guitar playing in that band. So, what song was it that has the riff that you're talking about? I think it. I think it was the song "The Guitar," which is just the guitar. Dun 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 dun. That's the Young Widows riff. <laughs> It's so but, simple. Um, I love it. So simple and and so powerful. And that that mm-hmm. was, yeah, I don't know. It was one of those things that just, it never left me. And that was 10 years ago. So when Evan and I reconnected later on through Kathy with this idea of the split, we started talking on the phone again and talking about doing this tour in Europe together. And the concept was that they were going to be the opening band. JJL would open. And then the members of JJL would serve as my backing band for my set. And so that's kind of what we did. Yeah, it was a very wild... It's been a wild ride. And here we are three years later. So where in there... You mentioned that this was like 10 or 11 years ago that you were so taken with him and that you then got to reconnect with him later. But where along the way were you like, we should be together? Okay. (laughs) There's, I mean, it's a little scandalous, you know, like um, Evan was not single when we went on that tour in Europe together. So I came to Louisville from the Deaf Heaven tour like I said, I got in their van. I like didn't, I was on tour for months straight. I was like, I'm just on tour now. I just, this is what I do. I don't, I don't live anywhere. Um, we came here to practice. We practiced for a week and then we went to Europe. We 
decided to bring Dylan, my drummer, from the other version of the band, which was the version with Chuck and Neil, who uh, from Planes Mistaken for Stars slash Woven Hand, they had been oh, cool. they had been the band that I toured with with Death Heaven. So Dylan, I was like, we got to have Dylan as the drummer. He came. We went to Europe. And I have to say, like, right away when we started practicing, well, let me say a few things, actually. When I got in the van <laughs> with them, I got in the van with them in Denver, and I was like, these are the drunkest people I've ever seen. <laughs> I was like, how? This is, this is hilarious. They, we had a meal where, like, some people had been on acid the night before, and I was like, I'm going to die on this tour. <laughs> Uh, this is complete mania and then a couple weeks in it was just like I never wanted to ever be away from any of them and then when we started actually playing guitar together that is when the sparks were flying and I think it was a combination of like no one was taking showers meaning I maybe Evan and I weren't taking showers and there was just like a smell (laughs) (laughs) that's real this is like real life from the road i mean like you know you've got one outfit that you're wearing and and then you start playing guitar together and then and then you get married i mean that's just that's (laughs) that's rock and roll right there and that's kind of what happened i mean it really it happened within a few weeks of us being together every single day and reconnecting and spending all that time in the van, sitting in the back seat, talking about the music that we love and and just bonding as friends. And there's a special, I think, bond that happens between people when you spend that much time with them and on tour. And then when you add the the layer of like guitaring together, it just it was so easy to fall for him in that circumstance, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There is he listening to you talk right now? <laughs> no, he's he's been sitting outside, but he just did a little. Um, and he's a babe. Come on, you know. He's the sweetest, most lovely human and such a shredder. And yeah, it just. And so by the time there was like definitely a breaking point in the European tour, which was not even that long. It was like three weeks. It was like this. There had to be a conversation. I don't know. I thought it would be a good idea to like bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what if we have an adult conversation about this obvious tension that exists here so we can like let it, you know, we can, we can decide about it. We can um, let it dissipate. We can be professional. We can carry on as friends. And it was just like, once I brought it up, that was, that was kind of the nail in the coffin. (laughs) you guys were like actually we're gonna be in love now yeah pretty much yes that's that's what happened that is such an incredible story it's it's cute (laughs) it's very cute especially because you know i feel like if you've already been on tour with somebody and and you're already around them 24 7 you're already seeing them wear the same outfit multiple days in a row you're already smelling them at their worst smell. Like, if you can fall in love with someone like that, chances are it's probably going to be pretty real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we, I mean, we definitely put it to the test. I mean, it evolved and has changed and has presented different challenges in continuing in that dynamic, you know? Like, once we decided to be partners, um, maintaining our relationship on tour has actually been difficult in some ways. Really? Uh, Yeah, totally. Um, I think that, well, for us in particular, Evan is such a strong creative force. Like he, I'll like wake up and he's already playing guitar and writing some incredible (laughs) shit in the other room. Some stroke of genius is happening. And I'm like, man, Like, I envy that. That's And I look up to it. And when it comes to... I think for him to be a player in my band is not a natural position for him to be in. So it, like, has kind of caused a little bit of friction. And we've had to navigate that uh, dynamic a little bit and and understand it and 
figure out that it is a thing and how how do we how do we deal with it and how uh, how I'm like I'm very different actually also on on tour and and in a role as, as a band leader than I am just when we're kind of in a more relaxed situation like I tend to be way more neurotic and stressy and controlling and all of those things combined like it's just two egos going <laughs> two people who are used to being in control creatively and also like the center of attention on stage and being the master of sort of the tour operation and stuff like that or is yeah. there I think I mean that's definitely definitely part of it for sure um and there's a whole nother there was a whole nother added element of like the first maybe two years of this we were doing it like both in the states and in europe where jay jail was the was opening so todd and evan were playing double duty they were playing two sets every night and that was exhausting for them you know that's a lot it's a lot it's just been complicated and and wonderful and beautiful and and a wild experience that I really could not have anticipated four years ago in any way. Totally. <laughs> so how do you tackle stuff like that? Like, can you recall the first time that you recognized that there was this power dynamic that you hadn't seen before and how you brought it up? Well, I think that, um, hmm, I can't really remember the first time. I think because initially we thought that we were all just doing this for that one maiden voyage to Europe as this, like, what do they call it when you see the double feature, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's the two bands in one uh, evening. Um, we didn't really know that it was going to become this, like, serious family that it that it became, like, legally. I mean, we're now married and and uh, beyond that, the other members of JJ and I and Evan and Dylan were all like a big family. Uh, we didn't really anticipate that. So I don't know when when I first sensed that it was um, coming up, but I think there's just a lot of patience is involved, I think, on everyone's part. And there's so many people and you spend... A lot of this also has to do with how extreme we were doing things. I mean, we did a tour two years ago where we did like a six-week U.S. tour, and then we went from that directly into a European tour, and we were all on tour together for almost three months straight. Um, and that's a lot to ask of anybody. Like, my sister and I did a tour together, and after a few weeks, we were I was, we were both out on I was out on the side of the car going ah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, I just can't imagine what it's like to be. I just feel so fortunate to be with people that I love so much. Um, but for me personally, like, I think for us and for for specifically for Evan and I and our relationship moving forward, I think we've talked about it that we probably will not tour together a lot in the future after doing it for three years so solidly that we will probably prioritize our relationship and put the um, music relationship on the back burner and let that be something that we can enjoy at home or for fun. Because when, when like commerce and our, our careers and our um, livelihood depends on it and then we're both so embroiled in it, it's just too much. That makes sense. Yeah. So does that mean that you have a different backing band now that isn't the JJL people? Um, it's undetermined. Like, I'm not sure really what I'm going to be doing. Like, the music that I've been writing for my next record is largely, like, centered around classical guitar. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> it's, it's, like, way more... Um, guitar focused and there's not a lot of instrumentation on it. I'm saying that now, but then like it could become a metal record in a month. I have no idea. So if you are spending a lot more time apart now because you're still touring all the time, I mean, you, you tour more than like most people that I know. 
And if you guys are not doing tours together anymore, how do you tackle miscommunications, you know, when you are not around each other and you are having to navigate like distance and also time zones and stuff like that? That's a very real um, character in our relationship. That's a very real um, person that lives in our relationship is the miscommunication. And everything that you just mentioned is a part of that. And yeah, like I've been gone a lot. And actually in the last year, Evan has also toured separately from me. And I've toured separately from him and I've been away. Like I was in Wales writing and the, and so we do go to couples therapy. Um, when we, when we need to, there's a therapist that we see a woman here that we trust and is really awesome. And I highly endorse therapy if you can find it and endorse and um, afford it. And there's definitely people that do it on sliding scale it's the best, it's the best thing in the world. Uh, it just helps so much. It helps to have somebody just be mediating a conversation and help put things into perspective. So that is a tool that we use and rely on. We can always like default to, and if there is a misunderstanding, which is something that happens so frequently, like texting Texting is your enemy when it comes to love. Like, it just is. It can be with your your good friends, with your partner, whoever. Like, it, there's so much that gets lost in a text message. Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I love to text, and it's an easy way to keep in touch. But the nuances that are involved in in a real relationship just gets so easily lost. And and especially if somebody's like, it's nine o'clock here and someone's been at the bar and it's like eight o'clock there and I'm having a coffee. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, I, um, you're in a totally different state of mind and you just have no idea what the other person is talking about. Yeah. And it's, uh, or how to, how to interpret the tone of some, what someone's saying. Yeah, totally. And so there's a lot of, um, we have a few like kind of ideas. They're not necessarily rules, but concepts that I find are very helpful for our relationship when it comes to, um, dealing with any, anything heavy or we just like put a pin in it and try to keep our connection going and keep our connection light and, and loving and, talk to each other about our day-to-day lives in a loving way. And if there are major issues that need to be discussed, we try to not do that in a text message or even in a FaceTime call. That That's like when we're able to utilize more tools, like be in person mm-hmm. and be able to access like a therapy situation or be in person with one another because it's just so hard. And especially... For me, like when I'm on when I'm on tour and on this last tour and I was sober, it was like we did have a fight on the road and it really derailed me for a couple of days. And I'm like, man, I can't this can't this isn't this isn't helping you. This isn't helping me. And it all comes down to just how easy it is to have a miscommunication when you're away from someone for so long. Um, and so I do think the best advice or like our best technique is is keep it light keep it loving those are like the go-to things and when there are real issues like it's just like that you know that idea about send like if you're gonna write someone a letter write someone an email you like can write it all down put it all in a form that you can bring it up later use it as like um bullet points or something you want to talk about something you can process and edit and it doesn't have to be like i'm calling you right now and this is the bullshit on my mind (laughs) you know like don't let that level don't my goal is always to keep things de-escalated escalating anything in a relationship is unhealthy from from my perspective so um 
when you know that you have time on your side and like, and that we do, we're married so we're committed to that, then there's mm-hmm. going to be a time and a place where we can really delve into these concepts and frustrations or whatever they, whatever's going on. And like, we can sort it out and the right time and place is key for that. And I think it's, I mean, what you mentioned is so important about the fact that it derailed you and you're, you're at work and you're on tour and trying to access these really, really vulnerable parts of yourself on stage by yourself with just a guitar. And if you've got heavy stuff on your mind, I can imagine that would be incredibly distracting. It can be distracting. I mean, if it's the right kind of like weird mental distress, it can enhance the the performance, but... <laughs> Not with the not suddenly with your partner. song becomes way more angry. <laughs> yeah, I'm <just> like ah. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, Evan's my home. Evan's my rock, and I want to be that for him as well. Well, I think it's really incredible what you said about therapy because I feel like so many people view relationship therapy as something that you do as like a last ditch effort if your relationship is failing, but in reality every couple on earth faces miscommunication problems or problems or not problems, but just like situations in which you need to figure out how to communicate better to another person. And so if you have a third party that's able to help you do that, then even if you're the happiest couple on earth, that seems really helpful to me. It's incredibly helpful. It rules. It it rules so hard. I like recommend it to people in the extreme endorsement, like all the way if it, you know, if you can find somebody that you can afford and you can do it and you can trust and you like, it's just, we sometimes go to our therapist and it's just, she just puts things into perspective and we're both like, oh man, I was being a dumbass. Like, hey, I like, <laughs> great. Got, this is totally, it just helps. I don't know. It's, it's so complicated. Humans and relationships and how we're designed. It's like, we need each other, but we aren't designed to really get along at the same time. I don't know. It's impossible to get out exactly the words that are in your mind. Like you have to get them out and then another person has to interpret them and understand them. And I feel like that's the biggest hurdle in life with any relationship, whether it's romantic or just a friend, like trying to get them to understand exactly what you're trying to convey. And then if you add intense emotions to that or distance or anger or jealousy or any of the million things that come up, then sometimes it takes a third party to be like, I think what you mean is this. (laughs) Yeah. And it's wildly helpful when that does happen and it comes out right. So how does Evan inspire you artistically? He has this, he just is tapped into something that I wish that I could say, I mean, I don't know, like sometimes, like I said earlier, it it almost has and it does at points in our relationship when I've been particularly in a bad place, almost conjures a resentment because he is so like touched by the muse. The man literally creates all day long, like incredible. I I, I know. I'm like, I'll, I'll wake up and I'll go. He wakes up before me. 99% of the time. And so I'll look outside and he's suddenly like, for instance, the last two weeks he started drawing again out of nowhere. And he's just doing these incredible little illustrations. And I'm looking out the window and he's out there like in this placid setting, just drawing silently for hours. And I'm like, dude, (laughs) I love you. And I'm also super jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Or he'll be playing some beautiful, inspired, unique riff that's just only Evan. It comes from him, from his, this well of creativity that he just never seems to dry up. Um, So he inspires me in his attitude as well. I think I really need to take some, like, I respect him, but I I need to, like, kind of take take a hint like he's got a very relaxed attitude in a lot of ways like he things like he kind of lets things roll off of him and he I think I I tend to be more of like a really like neurotic and all over the place and stressed out person 
And it doesn't seem like things get to him in that way. And just his ability to recenter in his creative zone and not put, put too much weight on it is inspiring. I mean, for instance, okay, there's a new JJL record coming out, which I'm sure he would send to you, that he 90% wrote on his phone while we were on tour with Bono. So he's playing guitar in my band, and he was just like, it's like, where's Evan? He's in the back seat on his phone, like, making this song. And I'd look back there, and he'd be like, and I'm like, okay, Evan's busy, that's cool. And it's incredible, and it's and it's wildly different from anything you've heard. It's just, he's always got... He's just got that. The in, It's like, you know, he's got inspiration a lot. And that's something that as an artist, you have to like work with or without, you know, you have to continue to show up to write and to draw or to paint or whatever it is that you're doing. Whether or not your muse is there to help you out, like you need to keep going to work. And I think Evan is really a master of that. Um and he's got such a unique approach to playing guitar that, I don't know, I marvel at it. I think he's really an artistic um, genius in his right, and I and I adore that about him. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I wish everybody listening could see this beautiful smile that's on your face right now <laughs> talking about this. <laughs> that makes me really happy. Um, have you ever written any songs that are just like pure love songs about Evan that we have heard? I have not actually. I have not written Evan's love song yet. But you say yet, so it might be coming in the future. <laughs> it, it it needs to come. Evan needs a song. I really feel like it needs to be the right song. I started writing Light Song before I knew Evan, and that song kind of morphed into our love song, but it wasn't like, seeded by Evan's presence in our story. So there is still an Evan song coming at some point. It definitely became about our relationship. Yeah, because it, it, you say, um, I hope that he's waiting to dress me all in white. It sounds like, um, like longing to marry this person that you love. Totally, yes. So you're saying that the, the, did those lyrics come later after you met him or were they, was it just a total coincidence? The lyrics, I mean, I think we could say for the sake of romance that sure, like, yes, let's just say that, <laughs> that it all came together <laughs> at the right moment. And it did all come together at the right moment. The songs sort of started out about like a maybe mourn, mourning of a different, mourning a different relationship and then became empowered by the one with Evan. And then Evan is on the song and in the video. I mean, it's and it very much has become about that. But if you're asking me, like, you and I are friends. And to be real, like, Evan is due a full Evan song. And, and we'll <laughs> see. We'll see what happens with that. Well, I look forward to hearing it. Does he, <laughs> has he written one about you? Okay, so <laughs> there is a song on the new JJL record that is, it's about me sort of like inadvertently. I associate it with me. Actually, there's a couple songs. There's one that's more overtly like kind of a sensual jam. And I'm like, oh, hell yeah. No, I'm like, <laughs> oh, weird. <laughs> like, I'm like, is this supposed to be about me? Because ew i'm kind of like that person when people are making out in a show that i can't look at it <laughs> do you know what i mean i'm like oh yeah. my god no i can't watch this does it feel kind of weird like letting people in on something private no i mean i think that's kind of what all my <laughs> songs are but when there's like true. a sexual element to certain things like there's so there's a song that's kind of like got some sexy vibes hell yeah but there's one that when he played it for me, I was like, I'm trying to find it. Okay, it's a song about him being in Berlin. And when we were on that first tour, this is a, it's all a true story where he was, we were in Berlin, he took acid, and we were like right by the River Spree in this like crazy Mad Max venue. I mean, seriously, there was a place like serving food that had flames shooting out of the top of it. Wow. It was really intense. I don't know. At some point I was like, I'm going to go to sleep. Like this is, you know, I got to go to sleep. Fast forward hours later, 
homie, like just someone gave him a key to to the room I was in. I mean, we weren't together at that point and he was on acid and he had like gotten lost and somehow magically found his way to the hotel that we were that he that we were all booked into this whole song is about his experience of being lost getting to the hotel then giving him the key to a room but he never reveals in the song that it's my room that he's given the key to (laughs) and part of me is like dude this is kind of fucked up like you know they just gave you the key to my hotel room we're not even (laughs) together and you're on acid and then he's like He's on acid, he's in my room, and I'm like, I'm sleeping, and he's got this kind of existential shit he's got to say. I mean, it's pretty hilarious looking back on it, and the song, there is a song about it now, um, which is a true story. He just fails to mention that it's my room that he gets the key to. (laughs) (laughs) On that split record that you guys did, there's that song where he says, about time you came to me. So is that song about you? No. So this is actually something I'd love to clear up is that that record is B-sides from both of our separate albums from from our before time. And I did not play on those songs of his and he did not play on the songs of mine. Um, Yeah, a lot of people ask that, uh, but all those songs were written before we reconnected. Well, it's interesting because the lyrics fit so perfectly as if they were about each other. And the the title is The Time Between Us. So yeah. I always just kind of assumed that it was about like you guys reconnecting and like having this time lost that you weren't together between those interactions or something like that. I really feel like us making that. Um, and by making, I mean like we worked on the artwork together. We worked on the title together. We didn't record the music together, but the collaborative aspect of the record, which mostly lies in the artwork and the title, definitely set the groundwork for us to start a relationship. I mean, <laughs> like, if you've seen the the covers, it's like, yeah, it, it's a fantasy relationship. And we even designed the download card to look like a wedding invitation. Wow. Adorable. Yeah. So... It was some foreshadowing without without question. <laughs> That's so interesting and so cool. I I kind of love that art can sort of, I don't know, like tell your future a little bit. It tells you things about yourself you don't even know yet. Yeah. Yes. In that regard. I mean, for sure. It's so funny. Yeah. I just didn't really have an idea. I mean, I knew when we were making it, I was like, oh, this is cool. I used to have such a crush on Evan. I'm like, ah. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's pretty wild. It is pretty wild. It is very magical, actually. It is like a, it, that whole split was almost like a giant weird ritual of magic that really solidified this connection and brought us together. So cool. So glad that it worked out that way. <laughs> Me too. I feel pretty lucky. I mean, my whole life has changed. I live in Kentucky now. Who would have thought? I think it's incredible. <laughs> so taking it back further, has there ever been either a song about love or a song about heartbreak that you've regretted writing? Hmm. Like once it's out in the world? I think that, yeah, there is one song, but I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> okay, you don't have to. <laughs> uh, I feel like, yeah, there's one song that's been, I don't know, I just feel like up until the last record I wrote very openly about the most traumatic things that happen in my life. And I think that's because maybe I wasn't very successful um, and I didn't have to like, I wasn't asked too much about it. I didn't have to relive it a whole lot. And now that's happened more and more and it's undeniable that I face these things more consistently and um, going forward will be more selective about what content I choose to include because, you know, very much like I said about the split record with Jay Jail, it's like what you do on a record and in a live performance is almost like a magic ritual and you're like invoking something over and over again. So 
the songs about those people, if it's something that was traumatic or heartbreaking or like abusive or whatever, like you're bringing that up over and over again. And that's always going to have its hook in you. Uh, for me anyway, it's hard to let go of it. If you're reliving that every night. Yeah. And for me, like, especially if it's, there's some element, like shame is a big thing. Um, and some of the things with the relationship stuff that, you know, there's been some infidelity in the past and some bizarre situations that I just, I'm not super proud of, but I've written music about it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, it's like the complete opposite of a, of a jingle that you'd want to wake up and sing. So I don't know. I will be more like considerate of my well-being in the future when it comes to the subject matter, uh, when it comes to relationship subject matter. That makes sense. I remember a few years ago, I read some interview that you did, I think right before you went to Europe. I think it might have been around the same time as the split when you said that it's not good for you to be singing those old songs from um, Marked for Death every single night and so that you were looking forward to moving on so that you didn't have to do that anymore. Do you still feel that way about those songs? Um, I feel that way about those songs. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I, I yes, that, that record is, yeah. Because I, by the time that On Dark Horses came, like I had already started intentionally writing certain lines that were empowering for me to sing every night, even though those songs are still like very personal and about some more sensitive subject matter. But I specifically wrote in some lines to say that would like help me feel not just like left at the end of this trauma and failure Mm -hmm. Uh, so I still feel that way and I do get worn down by it. And I think that's why like that last tour, it's so hard to do and face that stuff sober. It's like, but it's okay. I, I don't know. I get a lot of messages from people that that album has helped them in a lot of ways. And I think that's great. We're just underground artists, right? And think about like my heroes and Smashing Pumpkins, like playing, (laughs) playing, songs over and over again for like 30 years that sounds like a nightmare to me like there are some artists that have my complete trust like patrick walker of 40 watt sun patrick walker could make any record and i will go see him play it whatever it is no matter what Mm -hmm. pj harvey can make any album and i will go see pj harvey play like PJ Harvey has done an amazing job of evolving as an artist. Like her subject matter has completely changed from actually singing very specifically about love a lot in her early career to singing largely about political situations now and being more potent than ever and effective in a totally different way, but still impactful emotionally. And I think it's hard when being an artist and loving artists like I love early Tori Amos records or it's just like you can tell she's a mess and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, but I wouldn't want that person to still be like that. Like, you know, you want them to be able to be free and grow and change. And like the way PJ Harvey has done such a great job with that. I have a lot of respect for that anyway. You know, it's interesting that you bring up PJ Harvey because I feel like those things we're talking about, about like the raw relationship feelings frozen in time, I feel like To Bring You My Love and Nick Cave's The Boatman's Call, like the fact that they had this like terrible, painful breakup and then they left and each wrote those records and now forever we can relive those things. Yeah, enjoy it or like be healed by it or rip open our wounds with it or like whatever we need at the time even though neither of them are singing about those things anymore. And they were like, they were super young and probably didn't consider the fact that they would have to sing those every night and relive their trauma or whatever. But yeah. But I wonder about them too, because I, it's very romantic to look at them. Like you posted that photo and what a, what a beautiful power couple, but also so glad that they, 
have their own worlds, especially PJ. And you just, I don't know, I wonder what their relationship is like now. I like to think that they're really great friends and that they FaceTime each other. Like, they're (laughs) FaceTiming right now, and they're like... I hope so. Like, remember that weird time when we were in love? That was bizarre. (laughs) Well, especially because didn't she just do a cover of Red Right Hand for, like, Peaky Blinders or something? Did she? I don't know. I feel like I saw that come up and I was like, now that is something I never thought I would see in my life. PJ doing a Nick Cave cover. Like, all right. Glad they're in a good place. (laughs) You'd think they'd have to be. I mean, but it's impossible to coexist, you know, when you have been in love with another artist that you're not with anymore who operates in your world. Like, you have to find a way to become friends. So what do you think would be your, like, main advice that you would give anyone that was going to be creative and coexist with somebody that you're also in love with? Like another creative person? Well, let me rephrase that question. What advice would you give somebody who wants to have a long, healthy, loving relationship in general? I don't think I give good advice. (laughs) (laughs) But like I said, I think the thing that like my therapist told me about keeping, keeping things light and loving when possible, when a resolution isn't easy to get to. And that's one thing I've learned in getting older in my life and through the relationships that I've been through is that, you know, if there are hard times and things can clash and things can just not gel and there can be a million different colors of weirdness between two people, um, just keep it loving and keep it real when the time is right and when there is the right space and moment to get into the things and dig through them and work deeper into that but just because something hits right away and like maybe something's triggered doesn't mean that that's the right time to actually talk about what's going on it can mean take that time to check in with yourself especially if you're on tour you have distance between you uh, to think about it, write about it to yourself and bring it up again when there's a healthy environment to do that in. That would be my main advice. That makes sense to me. Like immediacy is not ever the, the right thing for, for relationships, um, or for, for much actually. It's like, if you feel like you need, you know, I have to resolve this right now, or I need this, or I need to say this, or I need to blah, 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 has to be right this second. That's not usually, um, the healthiest. It can wait, can wait a couple hours, can wait a couple minutes, can wait a couple days. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you're having that urgency, then chances are it's not going to come out right or you're going to be forcing that person to make space when they're not ready. Exactly. It can be about respecting someone else's space, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not in the right place to hear something or I don't know. Or as you mentioned earlier, the the time zone might mean that you're drinking coffee and they're wasted. (laughs) Yeah, or I'm wasted and they're drinking coffee, you know? Exactly. I need to talk to you right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Emma, thank you so much. This has been such an amazing conversation. I'm so honored that you shared all that with me. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks thanks for asking me, Kat. I hope I wasn't too much of a dingus. (laughs) The dingus honor is all mine. This episode of Hot-Blooded was hosted, written, and produced by me, Kat Jones. It was edited by Evan Dulaney, and the theme song was written and composed by Jordan Olds. The logo was drawn by Corey Largent, who goes by Insane Clam Pasta on Instagram, and additional graphics were made by Jonathan Amaya. Special thanks to Kathy Pello at Sargent House and to Evan Patterson of JJL and Young Widows for loving my friend Emma and being down with us telling some of your stories. 
I also want to give a shout out to the people who subscribe to the Lover tier on Patreon, Janet Talenko Davis, Ronnie Rodriguez, the band Drug Salad, and one of the greatest friends I have ever known, Mr. Mark Bassett. This is a completely DIY podcast with no ads, so if you want the episodes to keep coming, becoming a Patreon subscriber is the best way to help out. You can always toss us a few dollars on the Cash App at Hot Blooded Podcast, too. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next week. And until then, be good to yourselves, take some long walks, and seriously tell your friends you love them. See you later.